Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm so excited about this interview. It's going to be great. Oh, just jumping right into it, Derek. We got a big surprise for y'all. We are doing an interview with the authors of Book of Mormon for the Least of These. We hope you guys will enjoy. Okay, Derek is holding it up. Y'all can't see it, but we're holding yes. it up. Um, so, yeah, please welcome Margaret Olson Hemming and Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh. Welcome, you guys. It is such a pleasure to have you both joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, yes. So um, let us go ahead and jump right into it. We, get, we do have a couple of questions we want to ask just a little bit about, uh, I mean, obviously we want to talk about this amazing work that you two have produced and that has dropped recently, Book of Mormon for the Least of These, definitely our favorite study companion to the Book of Mormon right now. But we'd also like to take a moment to get to know both of y'all a little bit and some more of the excellence and theology in your lives that have brought you to this point of dropping such an important knowledge on the saints. So we'd like to know a little bit more about your lives and your backgrounds and how they have uh, shaped your approach to the scriptures. Um, But yeah, just we'll we'll start with you, Margaret. Um, We understand that you are currently the editor in chief of the Exponent 2. Now, a lot of our uh, listeners are already, I feel like a lot of them are already familiar with The Exponent, but can you tell us a little bit more about that publication? Oh, sure. Um, so Exponent 2 was founded in 1974 in uh, Boston during the second wave uh, feminist movement there. These Mormon women sort of getting together in their homes and figuring out what does feminism mean for me as a Mormon woman. And um, it has been publishing quarterly since then. I have been the editor uh, since 2015. And um, Claudia Bushman was the first editor and in her first letter from the editor in the first issue, she said, we're standing on the dual platforms of Mormonism and feminism. And that's what it has tried to do over 40 um, almost 45 years is um, sort of negotiate those those two platforms and um, address the the tension, the harmony that comes from being a feminist Mormon. All right. Thank you for sharing that. I definitely know a little bit more now. I've seen it around. I've heard of the publication, but I've never like actually had somebody definitionally and like just explain what exactly it was. So thank you for, thank you for doing that. And uh, Dr. Fatima, sorry, Rev. Dr. Fatima, um, we have uh, we put some respect on that name. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, I know. I mean, you could call me Fatima. <laughs> I know I can, but I told you at the conference. Like, even my own sisters and my mother, they are like they are in my phone as Dr. Mom, Dr. Lashawn, Dr. Nisi. They're like, wow. I got to put some respect on that name. <laughs> like, oh, I appreciate anyway. it. Honestly, I really do. <laughs> it took a lot of work to get those little letters. But. Exactly. That is yeah. my whole point. It took a lot of work to get those letters, and we just don't have a lot of women of color in particular that just do not have those letters in front of their names. So like I always make it an effort to make sure I put those titles in front of those names. And it's always bothered me, like particularly when Condoleezza Rice was in, in office or whatever. Like I never liked how they abbreviated her name. Like, and they only ever did this to black women, I feel like. So anytime I get an opportunity to put that respect on another woman of color's name, I have to do it. So 
You are Dr. Fatima. You are Rev. Dr. Fatima. You know what I'm saying? Um, I received that. I humbly received that. Yes, you received that. You received that. You get you all the things. So, um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your theological background? I don't think a lot of members of the church are uh, really familiar with theological studies, or at least we don't have a lot of theologians in the church. So can you tell us briefly a little bit more about your background and uh, what your concentration was in your study of theology, particularly Mormon theology? So I didn't specifically, um, when I finished my PhD at UNC, um, I kind of had to wrestle with God and um, about this call I felt that was coming through me. And through that, I, um, I wrestled with God at Duke Divinity School to do a Master's of Divinity. Now, how one Master's Divinity, I think that whole thing is a really, really <laughs> you don't do that, but whatever. Right. I mean, I also went to Divinity School who's like, mascot was a devil. So, um, oh, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> just, <laughs> I think things are full of all these sort of ironies. Um, I, um, uh, I, um, so when I went to Duke, I was really, really wrestling with what to do with my life, what to do with the feel like a call that was coming in my life, but there was not sort of a space for me to do it in Mormonism. Or when I tried to do it, it was just met with a lot of resistance if I wanted to teach or even have, um, women come meet who had asked me if I would start teaching a gospel doctrine class from my house for women that felt safer, that they could ask the questions they wanted to. When I was called to teach gospel doctrine, that came up as something that some of the women, and it was quickly shut down because we couldn't have a priesthood authority there or whatever was happening. So I just felt like it was just a lot of walls I was hitting. And so when I went to Duke Divinity, my goal was to take every class I could by a person of color um, that was teaching and I just, and it just so happened that I started to really get into liberation theology, um, in all these beautiful ways, uh, black liberation, Latinx liberation theology, and sort of womanist theology, not sort of, but really embrace womanist theology, which is from my brand of like black women naming God for themselves. And once I did that, like, it was the reason I could stay in divinity school was because I just was starting to delve into these all these theologians of color who were like asking the hard questions of God and mm. and asking and calling God on the carpet about like how long Lord how long mm. and what do we do to eke out justice in a very unjust world and what mm. that theology looks like and that wrestle looks like with God mm. yes ma'am thank you for sharing yeah, um, I remember that was a common theme of uh, your sermon at the Black LDS Legacy Conference was working out that wrestle, having that uh, really, like I like that phrase you use, calling God out under the carpet and really having those uh, tough conversations and having those tough wrestles with, with God himself and figuring out, I, I suppose, just the implications of these texts for our lives, especially for folks on the margins. I, I really like how you did that in particular, and I can't Obviously, we can't replicate that, like if I tried, but hopefully having you here will get a little bit more into that. But uh, we'll, I guess, Derek, I don't know. Should we start with some of the softballs or do you have well, a follow-up? I have a follow-up question real quick. Do you think um, a number of church members don't think they can wrestle with God or do you think that they are not allowed to or have no need to if they're not in a marginalized position? I yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I think I think we're not. What Divinity School did for me 
was it allowed me to name my wrestle and be okay with it and not it didn't it didn't shame me or say that my faith wasn't strong enough because i had these hard questions it allowed me a brave space to to wrestle to really ask the questions of god like why does this exist what what is the text doing can i call the text out can i say that prophets at certain points and some of their ways of moving were deeply sexist and racist and and it allowed that and and it didn't and in nowhere along allowing that sort of tension did it say i was any less faithful and so I, if i'm understanding your question right derek i don't think everyone gets that i didn't as much um get the feeling that i could wrestle and ask god and question god and be angry and frustrated um and not have to accept everything wholeheartedly on face value or have people teach me through this scriptures through a lens of privilege and have to accept that that's the only way to view scripture so i don't think we empower um our members or, or Christians as a whole to really approach the scriptures in ways and to approach God in ways to ask God why mm. and it not be something that you're maligned for not be something that says this is a statement of your faith when we fully know that almost every prophet we just got like we move into had deep questions of God so I don't understand how we got to the place where we're not really from Joseph Smith on. It was the wrestle with God that got to, to this inbreaking with God. So, but I don't know if culturally we're empowered to do that. Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. On that note, I think this is a good time to transition into one of our primary questions for today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what scripture is and I, I suppose, uh, how, how what, 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 what the purpose of scripture is. Like what is scripture and what is its purpose in our lives as uh, saints, in our lives as Christians? Uh, yeah, you answer that however you feel best. Your turn, Margaret. <laughs> Yay, Margaret. Uh, the, the way we have approached this uh, book is that scripture is meant as a description of people's journey with the divine and that doesn't mean it's not a prescription right and too often we read scripture as this is what the person in scripture did therefore that is what we should do instead of reading it as this is a story of how of the journey that they went on with god and what does that mean for my own journey with god even if it looks very very different from this person's um Fatima and I have been working on volume two of this this project. Hey, all right. <laughs> yes, we are very eagerly waiting it. We really are. <laughs> we were just um, we were just talking a week or two ago about the moment when um, the moment when the Nephites find the record of um, oh. I'm sorry, the record of Ether, are you thinking? Ether, thank you. And how um, how important it is for them to sit down and read this record together. And it says that the text in the text that they like stop everything and read this this record. And 
so that even though these and that record of ether then becomes part of of the book of mormon even though these people are gone and separate from the nephites and the lamanites and don't really have any um you know blood connection to them and um but it becomes part of their identity. It becomes part of their holy text and it becomes part of their story. And I think that's that's what we should be making scripture for ourselves, right? That we, we take these other people's stories and they become part of our own story. They become part of our own narrative. Um, they become part of how we understand um, how we understand God. And the more we have of that, the more voices we have, uh, I think the deeper and more complex our understanding of God becomes. Um, it's just like, it's the, it's, you know, the more perspectives, the more, um, the more voices that are heard and understood and valued, the more we understand the many languages that God speaks and the ways, different ways that God has speaks, spoken over um, many generations. Mm. It means we get to know God better. I like that a lot. Rev. Dr. Fatima, you got anything to add? I, that was that was beautiful. I, you know, Margaret and I have been working so long together that I feel like that was really sums up beautifully um, how how we've been approaching the text. Uh, I do want to that ether and the, and just sort of i guess because we're in that volume too so we're both there right now mm -hmm. um but thinking about how we hold sacred the stories of other people's journey with god so their journey is held sacred by adding to their text but they they still have their own voice in it so it's not a co-op it's not co-oping or appropriating that story it's still holding it in and who they were having them speak for themselves mm -hmm. in ways that allow it to enter into the scriptures into their scriptures um, and ours. But I, I feel like scripture is is meant, and you're gonna hear me say this a lot because, well, the prophets use it all the time too in the <laughs> Book of Mormon. The scriptures are meant to be wrestled with. Um, and that's part of our, our journey is to understand how others have walked with God and have found God in the most obscure and distinct wilderness and how God showed God's self. And scripture does that amidst the failing people, people who get it wrong. Like it shows you that, like how that, that journey goes. So it is as if we get to walk alongside others who are trying to get right with God and to try and do this life in the best way possible. Well, okay. That kind of answers another one of the questions I had in, you know, particularly asking what people who may not see like one of my questions was going to be how people who don't necessarily see themselves on the margins or how people who don't necessarily have a motivation to see themselves on the margins, what they might have to gain uh, from this particular work of Book of Mormon for the least of these. But you already kind of answered it in saying that in making other people's stories and their walks of God uh, important to us and making them relevant to us, we can deeply enrich and understand our own relationship better with God in seeking how other people's walks with God uh, have worked or how God has broken into their communities, we can have a much greater understanding of 
God's role in our lives as we seek to make those stories a part of our own. Am I hearing that correctly? Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, and I've said this before um, in public, but I, I feel like I need to say it many times. Um, I, I feel like I have gained so much from this project because of exactly what you described. I've gained a deeper understanding of um, that God speaks an infinite number of languages and really understanding Fatima's perspective, um, which is different from my own as a white woman, has uh, taught me so much about God. That is a priceless gift of understanding. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, and I will just say for myself, uh, in reading the this coming week's Come Follow Me, I'll admit some of the um, insights that you had about uh, women in particular were some things that have never really occurred to me. And I guess that makes sense as a male. But uh, just the ways in which Jacob holds other men accountable for their treatment of women is not something I probably would have been apt to see or at least have seen in that magnitude if it weren't for, you know, me being able to have access to the writings or words of somebody to whom those issues of womanhood and sisterhood in the gospel has a direct appeal to. Um, I can't, like, I was actually really looking forward to going to Sunday school this Sunday and talking about all that I've learned and uh, how the Book of Mormon is a radical feminist text, but I'm not going to get that opportunity, unfortunately. But uh, that, that, that j I'm just adding a witness to what you said there, Margaret, about the power of having the perspective, the words of another perspective in your study of uh, the text, in your study of the theology. So thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so a follow-up to that I'd like to ask. Can, can you talk a little bit more about your process when you uh, encounter passages of Scripture that don't really seem to fit our understanding of God as as a uh, as full of love and grace and no respecter of persons. Uh, I, I know you've talked about this, Doctor Fatima, at the conference, and I know just in this last reading of Jacob uh, one through four in particular, we encounter, I suppose, more of those terror texts. But I was hoping you guys could talk to us a little bit more about that process of encountering those texts and wrestling with them. So, um, I so. When encountering really hard texts, or as womanists like to call them, texts of terror, or um, scriptures that don't necessarily affirm the image of God in which you're created, that you're a child of God, wherever you're, so if those scriptures butt up against that, like challenging that you're a child of God and just as good, um, what do we do with that problematic text, right? And number one is that um, I, we to wrestle with scripture and to ask, the big questions of scripture. Number one, um, I'm going to go with a little bit of um, hermeneutics is like the lens by which we see the world, like this lens, mm -hmm. ways in which we see. But womanism, um, like the theology of womanists, are say that I'm, I'm suspect, I'm suspicious of any text that wasn't written by me, for me, or with me in mind. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be almost all scripture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the woman of color and marginalized bodies. Like, oh, this really wasn't written by women, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, the disenfranchised in, in, in some ways. And so one of the things is, is that we get to be suspicious. Like, what? 
what do you, what? And, and we also get to say that people are fallible. Prophets are fallible. The writers mm. of text are fallible. And we can allow them that fallibility, but still call out the mess. Mm -hmm. We still say, hey, uh, Paul, uh, Paul, 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 Paul. <laughs> and, and I do that a lot when I read Paul. I say his name like five or six times, sort of trying to like muster up grace for Paul. <laughs> what mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. Come on, you got this right, but this was so off, you know? Yeah. But I would, if I was writing a holy text, I would want the reader to know that, and I think the Book of Mormon writers and prophets do that so beautifully. They're like, anything that is good and true in this, God is, that's God. If there are mistakes, that is because I am fallible. That is because I am broken in ways. That is not God. And and that what, that's what makes the Book of Mormon so beautifully, like just, it's naming scripture in the process of scripture, like, and scripture writers are like, please take all the good, please know all the good, is, is of a of a great God. Any mess in this is my is my own handiwork and because of my fallibility. And so I think we get to toss things and we get to name things in scripture and wrestle with them and say, this Nephi, ooh, Nephi, 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 you were way off on this, and this is racist. Mm. And and we still get to also know that you got a lot of things right, Nephi, but some things you got desperately wrong and the people would be trying to uproot that or live in that wrongness for a while, you know? So mm -hmm. I think that's what I would want and really say when I wrestle with text, that's how I do it. I try to, number one, sit, let God move with me in text. And I always get to know that I'm a child of God and things that don't sound right, that inherently don't sound kind and good and loving and just and merciful all of those things that in lectures of faith call the attributes of god that joseph smith names mm. as the attributes of god if it doesn't look and sound that way it doesn't feel that way to your spirit you get to question it you get to wrestle with it and sometimes you get to toss it like you know what i think you were deeply wrong here um and i'm gonna name that and then i'm gonna move on to the what good do you have to like there's also good also good parts that you have for me but I don't want folks, when I approach scripture, I don't want you to throw everything out because people are, are fallible and prophets are fallible. Mm -hmm. uh, but you get to name that. You get to name where they're broken. Can I add something to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think one of the, the things that we've done in terms of the, the actual process of it is, um, is to go sort of against what my instincts have been for uh, most of my life, which is when I've come to parts of scripture that have made me uncomfortable or have really been hurtful or sad, sort of like just move on as quickly as possible and, you know, maybe just don't read those sections or focus on the parts that I like. Mm -hmm. And um, Fatima has taught me to instead slow down and really read it word by word um maybe even just getting through one verse or two verses at a time and thinking very carefully about the context in which those words are happening thinking about um what is the right why why is the writer saying these words what is his um, personal experiences that 
have caused him to say hurtful things. Um, what What's the theology that he's been taught about who God is and how God um, interacts with, with people? Um, and kind of getting up close and personal um, both helps me understand why that person would say that thing but also generates enough love in my soul to be more forgiving and compassionate um, towards that person um, and, and kind of let go of resentment for the words that have been said. Um, so it's, it's sort of like people and, you know, real life people in that when you get close and you really understand someone's story, it's hard to hate them for even the, the rotten things that they say or do. Mm. Yes, ma'am. Derek, you have a yeah. follow-up? So I have a follow-up question for, well, either one of you. So would you be comfortable with people naming parts of conference talks today or parts of the proclamation on the family as texts of terror? And would a similar framework that you use with the Book of Mormon work for these statements of contemporary prophets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but Tima was just violently yes. nodding before she said that. <laughs> Full stop, period. Yes. Mm. I, I take also the prophets and modern day prophets that with the same thing, I think Margaret described it beautifully, but as, as folk who also have biases, prejudices, and it infiltrates sometimes the very doctrine moving in the church. Mm. Or um, I'm gonna put doctrine in quotes. Um, Thank you. Because I think it's yeah. So I'm gonna put it in quotes and leave it there. Um, and so for me, yes, I, I allow modern day prophets to make big mistakes too, and I don't allow it. I think that's a change of verbiage for me. I I allow myself to name it. Mm. as destructive, not of God, antithetical to the God I know, not a way of moving in justice and mercy. Um, and I, I can still encapsulate that they can still do good things. I mean, Joseph Smith said some things. I'm just like, who, what? And then still, I'm like, Joseph, you were like brilliant in all these beautiful ways. So I don't, are the prophets still human? If that's a yes, then I can still then I can still move in the what it is to be fallible and human and try to follow a perfect God. Mm. I, that sounded very rebellious. What I just said. Well, <laughs> it sounded great to me. But on on that note, I, I kind of do want to ask about the uh, general response to your work, or less so the general response, and more about what kind of misconceptions people might have about your work and how you might respond to them. I don't know what you guys have heard. I mean, the, your work has been out for a full month now, I think. Uh, I just want to know kind of what you guys have been going up against, if anything, and what how you guys have been responding to it. Um, yeah, the, the response has been mostly overwhelmingly positive, and it has been really wonderful to hear, especially from marginalized groups, um, hear them say, I've fallen in love with the Book of Mormon for the first time, or I've been able to, you know, read the Book of Mormon and and enjoy it 
um, maybe for the first time in, in my life or the first time in decades. And that's really powerful to us um, to feel like this text helped in some small way for people's journey with God. So that's wonderful. The, the negative feedback we've gotten um, <laughs> is uh, sort of fascinating. I would say, um, I'd say the largest number is from um, men who are disaffected from Mormonism and are angry that we've said some positive things about the Book of Mormon. Um, we can understand that. And there have been a few who have sort of lashed out with angry responses and, and we've really tried to hold space for that, that pain and that um, result in anger because we understand that people are hurting. Um, there have also been uh, sort of on the other side uh, orthodox men who have been upset with the idea of um, I would say women uh, exploring theology and basically saying um, that we're out of line in doing that. I have less patience with that um, <laughs> critique. Understandable, um, right. But uh, I think we both have a fair amount of um, experience of um, men telling us to be quiet <laughs> <laughs> so um we're i feel pretty um pretty capable of just shrugging that off i don't think that warrants too much of um, any kind of engagement um i think margaret hears a little a bit more of things than i do um i i think in writing the book, um, I set it free in ways, um, and I said a prayer, and just my whole notions around it, which is that it would land in spaces, in hands, and with people who needed it. Um, and so I, I always, I have told myself as a preacher, or whatever, that I'm not for everybody, and that's okay. <laughs> um, but that I, I do have responsibility for those that I, that I am to reach or that God has moved me, has moved through me, that I have responsibility to do the best work I can and to be honorable in it and call. And so I feel like the book itself, when I hear people come and say such beautiful things, I, I'm grateful to a God that that moves in those ways. And I know that people are going to be upset. I just, I just, am, I hold that with a great amount. Like, okay, then I wasn't for you. And this wasn't for you. Okay. Or I'm liberal priestcraft. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know so, and I'm like, okay, it could be that too. I mean, I just, I just, you know, and I think my, my, my thing is that when I hear folks say, this is kind of renewed or I've, I've found good things in this. I'm just so grateful. I'm like, this is what, this is why we, we spent two years wrestling with the text and working with one another. And we do realize that we're two women two at two very different um, social locations in this life. And in many ways, and we, this work is just 
a gift. It's our gift back. It's my, like, if this could resonate with you, then I hope it does the work it's meant to do. It definitely has. Like, um, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know how often you guys be listening to the show, but we be quoting you guys every week that yeah. since the, uh, since the work has been dropped, we just feel like it's, we, we feel like this book is what this podcast has been trying to do ever since we started. We've wanted to make sure that there is a space for the words of other saints to be able to hear themselves and see themselves in this work that has traditionally not been understood to be for us or about us. And uh, we've had to say the same things. I remember early on in our, uh, in our production of this podcast, we were like, oh, we got we to gotta try to uh, find a way to appeal to, you know, you know to, to more white Mormons or to more conservative Mormons. And, you know, we also had to make peace with the fact that this just might not be for them. You know, they see themselves already in this church in a way that we do not get to see ourselves. We basically get to be the Black Panther of the Mormon universe. You know what I'm saying? We get to, yes, Wakanda forever, but we get to... <laughs> You know, and that's not going to be for everybody. That is ultimately something that we've had to, uh, you know, come to peace with is that we're not going to be for everybody. This message is not going to be for everybody. And that's totally okay. But if we can uh, reach those people who have especially not been able to see themselves in a way that the majority of the church has been able to see themselves, then we will have done our job. And we definitely feel like you guys are doing a great job with this particular work in Book of Mormon for the least of these to making sure that people like Derek, myself, our family members, our loved ones, my sisters, you know, it's great to just be able to read the text and to hear the text in a way that includes them and that magnifies them. So thank you guys very much for that. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, I just want to give my acclamation as well. So my background is biblical studies, and I'm sure uh, the both two of you have noticed this too, is that there's a particular sort of rigor and quality to academic work on the Bible that we have not really seen in the Mormon context. Like if you look at publications on the Book of Mormon, they're either very basic or very apologetic, and none of them have the academic or critical rigor that your book has. I think your book is the first commentary on the Book of Mormon that can compete with the academic rigor and quality of publications on the Bible mm -hmm. anywhere, mm -hmm. anywhere in the Protestant or Catholic world. I think this is this is historic. This is I've never seen anything like this. This is this is good enough that non-members of all denominations should read this book if they want to know about the Book of Mormon. Yeah, definitely. You're making me cry. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, um, I got more questions, but uh, Derek, do you have any you want to get out before I just keep hogging? Well, the... I just had another <laughs> another question. I'm sorry I didn't give you these questions in advance, but the focus on the least of these in the Book of Mormon actually has a little bit of an irony because most, you know, they're culturally in Mormonism. We want to say, well, all are alike unto God, and God is no respect of persons, and God treats everyone equally, and God, you know. But liberation theology has been um, impactful on both of us, and one of the tenets of liberation theology, like Gustavo Gutierrez said, God has a preferential option for the poor. Yes. God takes sides. Yes. In the Bible, God takes sides. Like with Egypt versus the Israelites, God takes sides. So how do we as members wrestle with you know, the idea that God can have a preferable option for the marginalized 
and God love it's, it's kind of almost like Black Lives Matter. Uh-huh. Saying Black Lives Matter is kind of like saying God has a preferential option for the marginalized. So how do you wrestle with both of those and keep those in harmony? Um, it's it, it's really difficult because when you're going through the Book of Mormon and, and, and you realize Jacob does this too, but there's always this comparison and it's always people, sometimes they're naming where, the prophets are naming where God is and whose God, side God is on. And I'm always problematic with that. Like I'm like, uh, <laughs> Actually, God can be on both sides. Like, uh, God can be ever-present. And I love that one of the three descriptions of God is God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Um, what I understand about Gustavo Gutierrez, that, that whole theology is that we have stripped God from marginalized spaces. That, that has been the move of, of Christianity and religion. It's almost stripped God from spaces and people and... Um, I think liberation theology is like saying that God is still in those spaces. And it's, it's almost doing the, like a very intentional shift. Like, no, in fact, what if God is more in those spaces? Like mm. trying to really shift a centered theology and so that we, you can liberate the margins, the least of these, and say, no, all this time you've been saying where God is and, and we're telling you in libera- as liberation theologians, God has always been present. God is ever present with the marginalized, the poor, the disenfranchised, the victimized and the abused, right? And so I understand what liberation theology is doing. It's almost like what my father did growing up. He would be very emphasize like black is beautiful, black is beautiful, knowing that the world would not see me as beautiful. So he was over, almost overcompensating for a world that would strip me up. Mm-hmm. And so I think liberation theology is really making a really assertive, aggressive move to move God into spaces where God has been, but that centered theology has stripped God from, which is one of the most vile spiritual abuses I think can happen. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. I'm happy to leap to the next question, uh, unless you have something to add, Margaret. All right, cool. Um. Goodness. So while, while we're still focusing on um, the place of the marginalized in, uh, in theological spaces, I do want to ask why, why, why you choose to engage scriptures when many people who don't feel like the church or like the gospel or our particular theology, that like they don't fit in it. Like, why do you guys choose to engage the scriptures on these matters when so many people like us have chosen to step away from it? Like the scriptures in particular. I love the scriptures. I love them. <laughs> Just, I have this deep love for them. I, and so I, even my patriarchal blessing says that I will have a, a hunger and thirst for the gospel and scriptures my whole life. So I know that's a personal thing, but I want to put it out in the universe because I think that helps you understand me and that I, I'm one of those folks that was just, I, I feel like the wrestle and what the scriptures do and, and um, I totally understand why people want to leave it. Um, I went to a spiritual trauma clinic and they're saying that people who- Those exist? I'm sorry? Spiritual trauma clinics? Like, I feel like we don't really know that's a thing. Yes. So I went to this whole seminar on how to move in spiritual trauma, like church, church church abuse, all that. 
And it was probably one of the most profound. It was done by a black woman and a Latinx woman, both um, pastors like, and just um, counselors, psychologists. So, and one of the things they literally taught us was that when a church and a, a religious entity has hurt people so deeply, one of the first initial inclinations when you finally break free is to leave everything about it. Mm. Um, is to let it all go because it's all painful. You can't almost decide what was good and what was bad because it was so painful, everything has to go. And one of the hardest parts of recovering from spiritual trauma is how do you recreate and reimagine a God in which you are good? Mm. And so I totally understand how folk have let scripture go. As Margaret has said earlier, we understand folk were like, yet for me, I, I, I've come up with some sort of like policy of like, I'm going to keep the things that are good and talk and give you back the things that ain't, you know, um, <laughs> I do have like a custody agreement with the church. Like, <laughs> okay, we don't, we get joint custody of the book of Mormon cause it's lovely. Um, you get to have sole custody of only men get the priesthood, you know, I mean, just like, <laughs> um, so I have this way of doing it so that I can try and heal. Um, really what I could try and heal and move in wellness. And so scripture was one of those things. I'm like, do I want to keep this? And I, I knew I did. And so how do I begin to move with God to rescue it for myself, to reimagine it and recreate it mm. as a person who's been harmed by it and it's been weaponized against me. How do I move with God in ways of resurrection and redemption? That's beautiful and i love that and fatima's story is always so powerful to me and so inspiring i often go back to um in my own sort of personal spiritual journey i go back to laurel thatcher ulrich's essay musterware i don't know if you've um, read that one but i highly recommend it for any um, member of the church but she um she talks about this process of sorting through what's good and what's bad and what's working and what's not. And, and um, she's right. She talks about a, a young woman who's written a letter to her and said, I used to think that the church was a hundred percent true. And now I think it's 90% true. And I don't know what to do with that. And she wrote back and said, if you find something in this world that is even, I think she says, even 10% true, hold on to it with both hands. Mm. Mm. And um, just think about, for me, what is good in the Book of Mormon, I'm trying to hold on to with both hands. And, um, and I can let go of what isn't good and what isn't working while still holding tight to what I see as, as truth with a capital D. Could you name that essay again? I don't think we quite heard that. Yeah, it's called Lusterware, L-U-S-T-E-R-W-A-R-E by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. It's in a collection of essays, um, a book called All God's Critters uh, Got a Place in the Choir co-written with um, Emma Luthane. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And thank you for uh, sharing that. Um, we, 
Something that Derek and I regularly try to do on the show is uh, move the conversation forward. I like I'll just speak for myself in saying that anytime I'm given an opportunity, particularly in predominantly white spaces, to speak about race issues in the church, a lot of time is spent talking about the past. A lot of time is spent uh, talking about the issues that we're experiencing now. And too few too few times do I get an opportunity to really talk about the way forward or in a way that allows us to move the conversation forward. So I want to take an opportunity to ask you both right now, how do you see the conversations around the marginalized evolving over the course of time for the next generation? And uh, what do you feel needs to be done? Yeah, I think this is super important because one of the, um, one of the most common pieces of feedback we get is from, um, teachers and parents of teenagers and young adults saying, this is the text that I, my child needed. Um, because this generation that's coming up, um, they are powerful and impressive. Yeah. And, and they're coming up with the internet and they're not, they're not going to, um, have sort of the, the one church narrative um, that earlier generations had, and they are seekers and they're activists, and it's beautiful to watch them. I've had so many tell me that they are looking for a way for their faith to inform their activism, and they see what is scary and and um, and bad in the world and they want to do good and they want to make it better and they're looking for the language of how to let their their faith inform that work hmm. um, so i think if we want to hold on to this generation in any way it's going to have to be a big shift towards um towards the margins and that is going to be what gets this generation um, to find value in in a in religion and in seeking the divine. Mm. Dr. Fatima, anything to add? Uh, that that I you know having children and teenagers and brown black children at that, um, and children who are moving in the world. I remember my son saying, y'all baby boomers, which I'm not a baby boomer, but I don't know. I was say, you like my age. Yeah, that hurts I'm my like, feelings a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm confused by this sort of ageism happening for this generation. But anyway, <laughs> um, he was like, why are y'all so anti-LGBTQT? He's like, y'all are a mess of a generation. And I remember thinking as he was really maligning and insulting my generation that it was true. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> And so, um, and I, I started thinking about my children grow up in a world where there's this of the, the world of which Mark was talking about. They, they want to move in the questions that they're having. We can no longer think that we could just, they're just repositories and we're going to like have this sort of um, obedience that, that, that doesn't allow for the questioning and a real wrestling of like, who, who are we? Who are we as marginalized bodies or 
bodies that have been systematically um, uprooted, denied, degraded by religion. Not just religion, but institutions as a whole. And I think a God of now, the God of now and the God of tomorrow wants us to be able to move with the God who's answering those questions and is calling us to dismantle oppressive systems, both within the church and without. Mm. And we have got to empower them to do that work. It is a powerful work to dismantle this stuff. Mm -hmm. And and I think this next generation, my goodness, as Marcus said, they are just like these powerhouses of thought and and gifting. And they don't sometimes they don't do their chores, but <laughs> but they're phenomenally positioned by a God who loves us. And we as a church, as a people, as those believers, have to moving forward, have to allow them space to wrestle and to move in ways that will dismantle this mess. And I think they're the generation to do it. I really do, and the generations to come. And we can powerfully equip them, equip them theologically and within the church to do this, to do this mighty work. Hmm. Absolutely, thank you for sharing that. I, uh, just last Saturday, I got the opportunity to work in the temple and I saw uh, on my way in to start my shift, there was a young man at the, like I work in the baptistry. He was at the uh, desk where the coordinators usually chill and, uh, you know, help people out. His hair was bright green. And, you know, I immediately thought to myself, I'm just glad you're here. Um, but then I looked at his uh, belt buckle and there it had a, it, it was rainbow colored. And then upon seeing me, he turned his lapel inside out to reveal a rainbow ribbon. At which point I was just like, I wouldn't have been able to do that at that age. Like this young man couldn't have been any more than 16 years old or so. But I remember thinking to myself, y'all are going to do it because I, I wouldn't have been that bold at that age. And further, you know, something that I cannot do that he was clearly able to do was create a space in the house of God for other people like him, other LGBTQ folks. And um, I really do feel like, and I've heard, you know, Derek say it on the show that, it is so important to make these places where we are not traditionally understood to be welcome and kind of change that room so that we are welcome. So I, I just want to add my witness to y'all's that I really do think that this next generation is going to be the one to do it. And it is our responsibility as the older generation to uh, give them the tools to do so. James, I love that story. I just like I, I'm just sinking into the power of this. Like I feel the spirit, like the Holy Ghost. Like it just even having this conversation, I just get weepy because it just seems like I, I don't think we realize how much we have to do this work so that they can do theirs. Right. Right. And Got I don't want to leave them ill-equipped. I don't want a religion that's anemic. I don't want a gospel that it doesn't allow for them to push and move and nudge this world just a little bit closer to kingdom work. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. That like made my morning. <laughs> I thought it was really cool. And it made my morning when I went in for my shift, uh, you know, and that was also the same morning. I got to see a bunch of, uh, I got to see the most brown kids I ever saw in the Temple Baptistry. They were a big surprise. And there was like 15 to 20 of them. Like there were so many of them that, 
we had to go into our reserve of jumpsuits. It was just like 20 brown wow. kids in jumpsuits. And I remember one of the older brown kids came up to me. She, you know, she saw me with my fresh cut and my dread still hanging. She was like, I'm so glad to see you here. And uh, that really meant a lot to me to be able to, you know, obviously receive that compliment, but also to be present and be able to see that, like just to be able to see all those children in there doing work of the dead. And, um, you know, also me hopefully being in a position to show them, you know, this is what it looks like when you get to my age. It is possible that you can stay here. It is possible you can be here and not only be here, but be engaged in this work as actively as I am, you know, and uh, that's something I've always tried to do as a member of the church is just to be as present as I can in as many spaces as I can looking the way that I do just to be able to at least show the kids, whatever kids are here, you can do this. Like you can do this just as easily as I was able to. So, um, I, I vibe with all that. And I really appreciate you sharing that and reinforcing this idea that, uh, we have, again, we have that responsibility to equip the next generation of saints. That is beautiful. And that that's beloved community that you're creating, James. I love that story. Thank you. Thank you. Um, gosh, I have, gosh, we've got a few more questions here. Derek, do you, I, I don't want to hog all the questions. Do you have any you want to um, throw out there? Well, I have one that I'd like to ask. Um, so, like, where in the Book of Mormon do you most clearly find hope and empowerment for women? Jacob is, is, is part of that for me. Mm. I, I love me some Jacob. S. Margaret. Like, <laughs> I, like, go ahead, Jacob. Tell them how society works. Tell them how you're going to be doing Like, Y'all can't be doing this to your woman and, and expect God to be happy. So... Jacob is, is beautiful and powerful. Um, it's unfortunate for me in the Book of Mormon, um, the mothers of the stripling warrior, oh my gosh, these mothers, who you know had to be widows, have seen such horrible things, and yet raised, raised these children. So you got this single mother society um, who are literally moving in the best ways possible to raise their children amidst a deep violence that happened to their families. And those women are just like, uh, I can't curse on here, but um, they're just <laughs> bad moms, you know? They're just like, I would miss. And the fact that, um, so I get all these tidbits. I mean, the wilderness woman, the immigrant refugee woman of Nephi's and Le Lehi's family, like the Lamanites, who eventually become what I feel like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's or the Ammonites who eventually become like the Relief Society for, for the Nephite kingdom. Like, um, take in everyone and show them great amount of charity. I just feel like there's just so many beacons of hope in the book. Yeah. Um, I, can't, I couldn't just name them, as you can tell, because I love the book. <laughs> I'm right, like, right. this book is a holy text to me for the many reasons that it, it is giving me hope over decades. It has offered me hope in ways that in, at times in this church where I couldn't understand blacks in the priesthood and, and now that I can name it for what it is and things, even the racism in the book, it still held me close. And it was one of the reasons I stayed a member. Mm. I think not just with scripture, um, even, you know, studying history, women, have experience with having to look for their plate, the places where their voices 
are not being overtly shared mm. and assume that they're still there. Um, I definitely grew up in history classes where we went whole chapters not talking about any women. Um, and that doesn't mean that those women weren't there um, and they weren't influential and they weren't powerful. So I think, like I said earlier, slowing down is really important and using biblical imagination is really important and asking the question who's present in the room but their voice is not being heard and then spend some quiet time just thinking about what that person's life was like and just because their their record isn't in the book of mormon doesn't mean that their story is any less important. Um, and we have these little whispers, these little hints of these women, and you just have to slow down and, and think about them and imagine what, what they experienced. And that imagination can be just as powerful as the written word. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this seems very much in line with the concept of a hermeneutic of suspicion of reading against the grain to recover um, the voices that are not there, uh, which is something that queer people have to do. Uh, queer people of all genders have to do. Yeah, yes. definitely, Derek. Both of y'all, Margaret and Dr. Fatima, we really do appreciate you guys for joining us today. Like this has been very enriching and very educational and just very faith affirming for me personally. I, I think I speak for Derek when I say that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, thank you guys again for joining us for uh, you listeners. Just want to remind you guys, we have been sitting down with Dr. Sorry, Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson Hemming, authors of Book of Mormon for the least of these. This is available on Amazon. Like that's where we got our copies. Um, but where else are you guys published? Where else can people find your book? We have heard that it's at a Walmart, but we don't. I, <laughs> I haven't confirmed or just, I don't know. But it's mainly through Amazon and um, by Common Consent Press has moved it through Amazon for the most part. And if we show up, if we ever do speaking things again, um, we'll have hard copies with us or paperbacks with us. Awesome. Awesome. And then yeah, we'll be, we're planning to be at Sunstone. If you're there by Common Consent Press, we'll be there selling copies. Um, and yeah, And we cannot urge you guys enough. This has been my favorite companion to my Book of Mormon study. So if you do not have a copy already, please do yourselves a favor and get yourselves a copy. We will leave a link to uh, purchase the book in the show notes if you have not already done so. Uh, again, thank you. Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson Hemming for joining us on Beyond the Block today. We really do appreciate it. Stay on with us, but uh, this will be the end of our show, our bonus content for the week. And we hope you guys will join us again for our next bit of bonus content and for our regular scheduled content next week. Thank you. Thank you.